I came out of pa Charles de Gaulle Airport there and, and found one of those little street vendors and I found a, a, a triathlete magazine in the back of one of the, and I literally flicked to the back of the book and found they used to have all the races all around there, found an event in Orange in the south of France and thought, well, <laughs> why not? Yeah, so I caught a slow train to save me on, on traffic, on, on sleeping. Yep. sleeping. I literally had $2,000 to my name and an open-ended ticket home. And that was basically, if I ran out of money, I was going back to Australia and the dream was over. Welcome back to another episode of Board with Nelly. Uh, my guest today, I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm going to learn all about triathlons, triathletes. Um, Chris McCormack, did I say that correct? Yeah, got it. Perfect. It. I don't know how to introduce you because I feel like introducing you might take an hour within itself. You have so many accolades that, which ones are you most proud of? Oh, geez. Um, being a dad, I guess, at first. <laughs> but I, from, <laughs> from a sporting perspective, yeah, just... Uh, you know, when I was a young athlete, I wrote out a list of, uh, I was a young triathlete, wrote out a list of events I wanted to win in my career. You know, it's a, it was a noble dream of a 14-year-old. So I think I'm most proud of completing that list, you know, winning world championships, Ironman in Hawaii, those sort of events yeah. over a 20-year career. It was pretty cool. That, yeah, that first cool. answer was in case the wife's listening. Uh, the second answer is now for the for yeah, the exactly. You got it. You know the drill. You know the drill. <laughs> you know uh, the drill. I'm really excited because I'm kind of a newbie to triathlon, the the scene, if you may. Um, so I, if I ask some stupid questions, I apologize in advance, but I, I kind of want to learn more about the sport, and I, I'm hoping other people that are listening also kind of fall yeah, in love right. with it or become interested with it. Um, so let me let me ask you the first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to kind of pursue this career path? Uh, it, well, I was an accidental athlete, and I say that, you know, quite openly. I, My father wasn't, we, we grew up in south of Sydney in Australia uh, on the beaches. I wanted to be a professional surfer. Um, you know, we lived literally on the sand, and everyone in Australia literally surfs, right? So um, I fell into running um, with my father, we, we had no sporting background except surfing because um, I used to lose the competitions I was doing as a kid. And back then you used to have to paddle out around a, a buoy and uh, it was called priority. The first athlete that got around the buoy had priority on the wave. So I used to always lose priority, which ultimately cost me in my competitions. So my father thought, well, you're not fit enough in his, in his wisdom. Let's, let's go running. So we just started running every day. We had no idea. We just run around the block. And, and then I quickly found out that, over the years, I was a better runner than I probably was surfer, and and I uh, started winning national championships and stuff as a schoolboy in Australia. And I just had a a natural affinity to being able to run well. And triathlon sort of came in. This was in the in the you know late eighties, early nineties. And triathlon is a very American sport, and it started to infiltrate Australia quite rapidly. It really suited our our climate and and our way of living down here. Um, and we had some great triathletes that were going over and racing in these events in the States. And I was lucky enough to be from one of the towns where one of the great older athletes, a guy called Greg Welsh, came from. And I sort of fell into triathlon through that. I could swim. I was a fantastic runner and <clears throat> I used to ride to school. So it was just a natural affinity. But I had no, when I took up triathlon, there was no global sport. It'd be like saying to someone now, I'm a professional Spartan racer, which I'm sure people do, right? But I, but it was very, very similar type of sport now. I had no idea that it'd be an Olympic sport. Ironman would be, be a monster of a, a sport globally. It's just at that point in my life, it was something I liked doing. I was, you know, 17, 18, 19. So the most important things in your life at that point are, are girls. And, and a lot of pretty, pretty girls tended to gravitate towards that sport. So I naturally went that way. So, yeah, it was accidentally I fell into it. It's funny how many things we could probably trace back to that reason, like for men doing anything, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> like I wanted yeah, to be yeah, an totally. engineer. I wanted to get a big fancy car just to impress some girls or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, with triathlon, they wore well, they wore bikinis and swimsuits. So I came from running where they were all dressed up. But right. I remember going to my first triathlon and seeing all girls my age in bikinis and swimsuits running. I'm like, oh, man, this is heaven. <laughs> yeah. Where do I find more of these races? So I did the same thing with tennis. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. like, there's no guy playing exactly. tennis here in Canada. This is a new sport here. <laughs> but, yeah. 
So you you know you had some success with early sports running, obviously, but you didn't see a career path into it. So you went into something your you know father, your parents told you to do, or kind of pushed you in into. Yeah, without question, my father. Um, the story. My dad wasn't very well educated. I have an older brother and a younger brother. He was determined his three boys would would be educated. So my older brother's a lawyer, and I, I became an accountant. I got put into the University of New South Wales. Uh, I got a running scholarship there. My dad sort of got actively involved. Not that he wasn't involved in my sport. He used to take me to sport everywhere. But suddenly realised there was a means to an end by being good at sport because he realised I could get a university scholarship through sport. Ah, right. So he really started doing. He really started to encourage my running my later years in life. Not around being a professional runner by any means, but to get a university scholarship, which I ultimately got at the University of New South Wales. And you being Canadian, that's also the school. That's where I, that's how I know Simon Whitfield, who was a Canadian Olympic gold medalist. Wow. He grew, he grew up in Sydney and went to the same university. He spent the last few years of his, of his high school in Sydney and then went to the same university before going back to Canada. So Simon and I know each other really well. He, well, went, on to win the Olymp- yeah. he went on to win the Olympics in Sydney for Canada and triathlon. But, yeah, it was during that period my father was all about school. So I graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce, majored in accounting, did my master's in accounting and marketing and was working at Bankers Trust Um in my early career, when I was right out of university, which my dad was ecstatic about, but that was when the sort of sport started to take off heavily. I was, a, by that point in my career, I'd done a few races overseas with my federation. Um, I'd been talent ID as a major talent in the sport of triathlon. Triathlon was looking to make its Olympic debut. It had just Sydney was an Olympics. So I'm a Sydney boy, Sydney Olympics. Triathlon's going to be the first day of those Olympics. Triathlon within Australia got an injection of, of notoriety and funding and right. I was I sort of had a point in my career then where I said dad I want to be a professional traveler when we go to the Olympics and he sort of said don't be stupid <laughs> you know you got a great job and I, I had to make that very difficult decision to quit my job against my father's wishes to pursue a a dream of being a professional triathlete and 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 going after going after it in this sport that was really, really starting to, to explode in the early 90s. Talk to me about the scene at that time. Was there any cash flow? How, what were the events like? Did you win any money, sponsors, stuff like that? Yeah, that time I think was the best in the sport. It was it was still seen, you know, Ironman is such a massive thing now. Everyone knows an Ironman athlete. But I recall in those early 90s I'd get on a plane. You know, you're going to events in Japan where the winner would win, say, $30,000. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was. It was not. It was still seen as a very, um, it, like a sport. Like wow, it was sort of a people. What do you do? And then you do what? You know. And then nowadays, people are like, oh yeah, yeah I got a friend who does shuffling. You know. But back then, there was it was definitely a wow factor attached to it. A, bit, a little bit like ultra running probably is today. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of these really big events popping up all around the world and attracting very interesting people to to those events. The biggest, obviously, were in the states, Chicago. New York, big event in Los Angeles, a big event in San Diego, um, big event here in Australia at that time, Noosa, which still exists with 14,000, 15,000 athletes. But there was a World Series starting to happen, big, big events starting to happen in Europe, in Switzerland in particular, and France, and Germany. And I was sort of at the at the cusp of that explosion. And the Olympics, the acceptance of triathlon as an Olympic sport um, in 1994, um, oh, Boom. Long yeah, long that's, long that's it, right? The story that, that I really love is the one where you said you went to Paris, you you didn't have much money. Something this, yeah. this is something people maybe can't comprehend today. There was no internet. You just took a flight, you had an yeah, idea yeah. of what you wanted to do, you grabbed a magazine. Is that true? And then you looked for advertisements yeah, yeah, yeah. of races. That's 100% true. When I opted to become a pro, I tell the, tell a lot of the junior kids now, and completely different times. So when I quit my job, I, it took me a few weeks to tell my dad to pluck up the courage to tell him that I quit. But I literally sold everything I owned to buy a ticket to, 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 to fly to Europe to become a pro. Now, I had never really thought what becoming a pro actually meant. I just knew it didn't, it didn't involve me living in Australia. Right, I had to be somewhere yeah. else. Right, so so I, the only focus I really gave was around buying that ticket and getting to Europe. I thought once you arrived in Europe, everyone would go, oh, wow, Chris McCormack's here. Oh, let's let <laughs> roll out the red carpet. Oh, yeah, let's yeah. roll out the carpet and give this training he needs. But it, it didn't work that way. I arrived and you know, to no fanfare, nothing. As you said, no internet, no mobile phones. And I came out of Charles de Gaulle Airport there and and found one of those little street vendors. And I found a, a, a triathlete magazine in the back of one of the. And I literally flicked to the back of the book and found they used to have all the races all around. There. Found an event in Orange in the south of France and thought, well, <laughs> why not? 
yeah, so I call it a slow train to save me on, on traffic, on, on probation, yep. sleeping. I literally had $2,000 to my name and an open-ended ticket home. And that was basically, if I ran out of money, I was going back to Australia and the dream was over. So right. It was basically race to feed, you know, race to live. And, you know, I did, I was racing Saturdays and Sundays and finally found a, a, a little guest house in a, in a town called Chance in Gap, which is in, I guess, uh, southwest in the Alps, southeast, yeah, southeastern side of, of France. Not a, bad, not a bad place to stay. Beautiful, <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful place to live. And, and that became a main training base. And yeah, I fluked it. I saw a big money race in Paris. Um, in the magazine, it had $20,000 for the winner and it was a World Cup in Paris and I rang up to do that event and they were like, no, mate, yeah, this is a World Cup. You need to be nominated by your federation. So they're like, yeah, yeah, but there's no Australians doing it. And at that point, the World Championships were going to be in Cleveland in the US, so the Australian team had opted to be based in Peterborough in, in Canada. And uh, so fortunately, there was because there was no Australians in Europe, it was like That's it. <laughs> I was able to get into this event. And I had a fantastic race there, and and the president of the of the ITU, which is the governing body, was a Canadian called Les McDonald, who literally started the sport of triathlon on the Olympic journey. He approached me and said, "Who are you, mate? Like, uh, you just come." You just flew over here last week, and you're <laughs> yeah, hey, over here. I've been there a few weeks, and I said, well, "You know, look, I just came out of university. I've just quit. I want to be a pro. I want to go to the Olympics." and He's like, well, you just finished six in a World Cup, you know, where you've been training, what's federation? I told him the story. And he said, well, would you like to come to, to Drummondville next week in Canada? It was in, in French-speaking Canada. And uh, and I said, oh, look, I, I I can't afford that, mate. Like he said, oh, well, you won $3,000 today and we're sponsored by Lufthansa. Why don't I take oh, some of your money and come out? Yeah. I said, look, you got to ask my federation. I didn't know who this guy was. He's like, look, I don't need to ask anybody. I'm the president i'm going to bring you as a wild card and so i came over across it went oh well yeah i'm never been to canada let's go boom so i jumped on this plane stayed in a homestay in drummondville canada 1996 i'll never forget it second ever world cup australians have never australians who had dominated triathlon for years had only ever won one world cup with a guy called brad bevan and uh i came in this event and i won it my and uh yeah had it it changed my life literally yeah, it was so I always have fond memories of Canada. I always sure. race very, very fun in Canada, but yeah, Drummondville, Canada with my homestay. It, it just just was the launch of my career. And, and Les McDonald has a lot to do with that. And and I guess the flexibility in mind to sit I, I already said to myself when I was in that plane going to Europe, just go with everything. You know, don't yeah. don't you're already there. You've already, you're already there. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't question it. Just go with the flow. Wherever this journey ends, it ends, right? But don't have any regrets. So I I'm glad I kept that open mind and and went with opportunities as they presented and explored them. And, and it, yeah, that literally changed my life. There's so much yeah. value there for anyone that's younger listening to like you were, you're a pioneer in the space in so many ways. And you took this chance. Some people came and get home without the internet, without Google maps. You, you took a flight to a yeah. country you don't know, to a language you don't speak to just pursue something that you were like really hungry about. That's quite remarkable. You know, if when you look back at it today and you were the first representing your, your nation, right. in, in Europe, yeah, but, but there was a lot of Australians there, but none of them had ever. Yeah, there was Australians that were basing there. I wouldn't say I was the first, but I was one of the early pioneers that you broke made a through. home. Yeah, broke through. Yeah, yeah, made a home there, and uh, yeah, it was just a different time. My kids say, you know, nowadays, oh, Dad, we went a week without a phone. I'm like, dude, I went 20, <laughs> 35 years without a phone. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't worry about it, kids. You'll be right. But uh, yeah, it was a. I look back now, and I, sometimes I tell some of the younger kids, and I can tell. They don't understand the enormity of it because they correlate it with today. Yeah. Oh, the you've got your phone and but man, I sleeping in hotels and big maps out. You go bike riding, right. you'd have these big paper maps trying to work out where to go on a bike ride. And right. it was it was interesting times. And Walkmans, you didn't have access to 10 million songs. So you had right. I had a Lannis Morissette tape that I just played <laughs> <laughs> on repeat. <laughs> Jagged little pill. That was the only right. album I had. That's so, so funny. Uh, it's funny, funny time. Another question I guess I have a, around that time frame, there's so much more we know about nutrition today and, you know, the importance of sleep and all these other things that, I don't know, did you have access to that kind of information or were you kind of learning as you went? We learned as we went and it started to really, the, the high performance arm started to really come in in, uh, yeah, 97s, yeah, that, that early period, 96, 97. Once we became an Olympic sport, it went from, you started to get a government funding, which brought in sports science. Yes. Now, 
where that where sports science was then in comparison today, that that early nineties era was the era of of heavy drug use by sports athletes. You know, anyone who followed the Tour de France or and and you know, I used to race with Lance Armstrong, and we 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 all were in this space for years, and so it was a very different way of approaching testing and science than it was. Sydney changed that game for the better. Um, Australians were, I think, a lot of the common. We were very naive. I was very naive as a uh, young athlete arriving in a in a pro sport and cycling and, and triathlon in Europe that was exploding and and what was happening in it. It was it was a, a massive eye opener. And I uh, and so the sports science came for the benefit of sport in that sense because prior to that it was it was just a zoo. It really was. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, race these guys, and I, and I understand it. I didn't, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I would race guys from Kazakhstan, for example. That the average, the weird yearly salary for someone in Kazakhstan was four thousand dollars a year, right? Right. And, and they can go and win one race at a race. Yeah. And as, as they tell me, like, dude, I'm going to cheat, man. If I get caught, I make half a million dollars. Yeah. I would, right. I would make that in my lifetime. Right. But, uh, even if they ban me, who cares? Yeah. I'm done. Right? So I understood why people did it, but. It was a very, it was a, it was a bumpy road that that late nineties. That's for sure. A lot of frustration. Well, if you're trying to, which you seem like at the start of your career, you had bigger ambitions. It's kind of like you know, I can't go down this route because I, I want to do it the right way, right? And and there is a there's, there's a cop out, and a lot of people say everyone was doing it, and and that's bullshit. Not everyone was doing it. That's the cop out. The drug takers say it, but but a lot of the guys you found that did it were not the best guys. So I, I believe that the you know, we're talking about drugs, but I, I believe that 50, in my spot, a large majority of the people were very, very clean. There was a small majority that were not clean. They were obvious. We all knew it because their consistency was up and down. And they say you can't make a, you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse, but <laughs> tell you what, you can make a donkey run fast. Right. Right? Like, they, and you see it, these guys, and especially in my sport where these big swimmers that had so much bulk and, and naturally shouldn't be able to correlate to being fantastic runners. Right. We're doing amazing things on the run. We're, you know, we, you know, two weeks apart, but you're like, come on guys. Like, so that, that was very difficult, but the sports science and, and the evolution of sports science within endurance sports in the cycling and triathlon space, we were able to, to put in, to establish benchmarks that limited the drug use and ultimately find tests for EPO that literally pinged the entire sport that they, right. They were there working in. And so it was sure. a very, very, a lot of people struggle with that because a lot of the drug testing and everything that came out in cycling and triathlon and, and the science that came through that were developed by the people that were in that sport. So, yes. uh, so they know the most. The, yeah, yeah, they knew the most. So it was it was interesting times. But nowadays the science is is really, really dialed in. If you look what the Norwegians are doing now and 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 really where where the big monumental improvements are in, are in bike position and and aerodynamic drag on the bicycle and you know com- conversion of watts per kilogram to actual pace where yeah you know, it's 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 fascinating times in 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 that space is is the bike that changed the most since you started let's say to to today yeah like, no, is it, technology that technology, without question, has, has changed remarkably. Shoes have changed remarkably in the last couple of years with the new, you know, the Nike stuff and the uh, Asics and everyone who got those new carbon soles that, that give back. And they they really work heavily in triathlon because they really support fatiguing runners. So triathletes tend to run fatigued because they're coming off a bike. So yeah, right, of course. In, in in shoes keep you in a much better position, give you a lot more spring where you lose it. But bikes have just gone next level. Bikes and and clothing. We used to race in singlets that flapped, and right. you know, and, and you know, it's completely didn't. Now they got aerodynamic suits. Right. So a lot of people are like, why are they riding so fast? In fact, the watts they're putting out are equivalent to what we were doing. If not, it's just that the, the, the they're getting more use out of them, right? They're getting, getting more, more use out yeah. of those watts, and it's it's remarkable what they're doing. Right. Um. I guess I'm kind of this is where I'm a newbie, so I kind of want to know. If I were to start today, let's say training to become a triathlete, how does one begin to do that? Because from the outside looking in, these numbers that you're putting up, the swim, the run, the bike, they seem so inhuman, but obviously over time they can be achieved. So how do you go from nothing to building into that? that that's the most common question we all ask. I think, you know, people say, oh, how do I do a triathlon? I always say, look, the best bet is to enter one. Like, that's the best piece of bait you can ever give anyone. Enter a race, even if you've done no training. You, 
to get into them, you're looking at six months a lot of the time, eight months minimum, right? And that that gives you a, an accountability to yourself to do the work, right? Yeah, because there's no joke. Yeah, it's not as hard as the distances make out. You never have to do those distances in training, but you need to get the the aerobic conditioning and the fitness base to be able to survive those distances. Like it's interesting. You know, it's you know, if you're doing a sprint race, you you, you don't need to swim 750 meters without stopping before doing a 750 meter swim. You, you can do different variations of that during the week, but the consistency of that is what matters. So I always say to people, enter a race and then is that like yeah, a benchmark? Up. Like the, the race, the first race is the benchmark to see kind of where you're at. Yeah, yeah, and I always say the minimum you can do in training is say twice the volume. Like and this is the absolute minimum, twice volume per week of the distance you're doing so if you're going to do a an olympic distance you want to do 80 kilometers minimum a week of riding which is nothing yeah you know like you want to do three kilometers a week of swimming and you want to do 20 kilometers a week of running you will get through an olympic distance race quite comfortably doing that now if you can start to get three or four times the distance you start to get very very easy now it doesn't always correlate to ironman it's different but in those beginning distances and and when you break that out over seven days it's not a lot of work it's one one session a day, you may run one day, swim the next, bike the next. It's the average workout for, you know, a person. The average, workout, yeah. Yeah. average workout. And then it's just, as I said, once you have that goal and you start to roll out some consistency across those three different sports, you'll find that way of working out pretty enjoyable. And I always found the different groups of people that exist across those three sports are very entertaining. There's some yeah. wonderful people, you know, great swim squads you can join and you make some great friends. There's great bike groups you can join and, 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 Run groups, yeah. So there isn't yeah. that much in Canada, to be honest with you. This this run group thing is more of a European or more of an Australian because there isn't that much here, from what I've noticed. Okay, okay, not even a gyms or. I mean, it's t- well. First of all, it's tough here because six months of the year it's unbearably cold, <laughs> so no one's outside. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then when it's warm out, it feels like people are like, well, why the hell would I be running in the heat when I can like go to a beach for the yeah, first yeah, time? Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's it's tough, but. Okay, so let's say I have, you know, I've started training, I've got my distances down. How much time do you spend focusing on nutrition, on getting your, you know, vitals, you know, um, right? Yeah, it's all dependent upon the, the the objective you have, right? If your objective is to have a good time and finish, then yeah, like you want to, you want to, you made a decision to be active t- to improve your life, right? So um, yeah, when I say how much time was I focusing on nutrition? Um, not a lot, to be honest. Really? I, I, I actually did, I did triathlon because I, I, I'm a foodie at heart, so I was able to eat anything I wanted. But I, I was when I was in the race, when I moved up in distances, I lied. When I started doing Ironmans, and then, yeah, nutrition becomes basically the fourth discipline. How do you feel yes, yourself right. long periods of time? But for most of you guys that are doing a sprint distance or an Olympic distance, you know, a gel and a drink and a hydration is is key. And, and, you know, a couple of gels are fine. It's not really something you focus on. Um, yeah, but you just try and eat a, a pretty balanced diet. That's the great thing about once you work out, you're able to – training and working out forgives all the all the mistakes right. you make. Like, I can go get you know, a pizza on the weekend or whatever. Yeah, yeah like, oh, that cancels the pizza out. <laughs> right. Really. It's when you're not training that you think, oh, right, that's the third pizza this week. And <laughs> yeah. <happy. laughs> that's how I'm at the moment in quarantine. I'm like, oh, my God, all I'm doing is eating and not working out. After so. I go for a swim, uh, the, the pizza is, just tastes better. I don't know. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. We've pizza. earned it. Yeah. Yeah, you've earned it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, like, I was always interested in the earlier days of these things, how much you learn from, you know, okay, my body needs this much rest uh, as opposed to training every day or every week and always kind of testing, like you said, the fourth discipline, always yeah. testing where you're at without overdoing it, trying to get better, but also not trying to detriment like yourself, you know, it seems like there's a a lot there. There's a lot there, but it's a great personal journey. You've tapped into something, but I learned more about myself through this sport, like both as a, I guess, both cerebrally, how I, how I react to to duress and stress, how I can decompartmentalize things that I've carried into the business world without, without question. I, triathlon was the greatest educator of me ever, or not so much triathlon, the element of com- competitive sport within the within the framework of triathlon was was remarkable. Even though I was very individual, there was a team I had around me that were a big part of that journey. And then understanding what I was learning about myself on the way, right? Exactly that. When can I work under fatigue? How do I work under stress? How do I a mental questions- and physical education? Because you're learning your physical. body, where your body can yeah. go, and you're learning where your mind can go, right? Yeah, and you build you build a lot of confidence out of that. You know, you, where where are our own biggest critics, right? So when you start achieving things 
personally, like, and personal achievement, you value a lot more. When you sure. put a goal out and do it, you, you, you go back in your room, you're like, you, fuck, I thought you feel good about yourself. <laughs> For sure, of course. Those sort, those sort of things, you know, you take a lot from uh, as a person. And I think uh, you, you build a, a resiliency and a, and a strength that, that is transferable across multiple things. Right? You know, and I, 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 without question, yeah, you know, I say to my dad, university was important. I learned fundamentals of education, but what I learned on the life of as, as a pro, a professional athlete, and being involved in a lot of the, a lot of the commercial side as well as the training and physical side, uh, I said it empowered me to be a, a better person, without question, a better father, a better everything. I'm, I'm able to, I know who I am, and I'm comfortable with that. It's it's that quote, right? The, if you can master one thing, you can master them all, right? Or or something yeah, yeah. along those lines. So you started yeah. winning a little bit when you landed in Europe. You started doing really well. Okay, now it becomes a career path. Now everyone that's doubted you, your boss, whatever, you can say, yeah, look, I did it. So what, yeah, yeah. what happened from there? Yeah, I sort of, you know, I was, as I said, I was a young talent. Then I sort of delivered it as, a, as an elite talent. I, I came back after that 96-year winning Drummondville and I did my first ever world championships as an elite and I got my doors blown off. And one of the Australian older Australian guys who had been a world champion many years before took me under his wing and dragged me back home to train with him and his father. Really? So uh, I spent, yeah, I spent 12 months under their guidance and I went from, I literally went from a, a talent to a, a, a monster. I was, I was unstoppable. Yeah. And, uh, you went back and, to the U S and won 33 consecutive triathlon races. Yeah. Yeah. I won world championships the following year. I went into I was world number one all the way through to Sydney. My mum passed away just before the Sydney Olympics um, on the eve of the Sydney Games. So the Australian Federation opted to drop me from the team. Didn't think I was mentally ready, which broke me. Um, I wanted to, yeah, I, I promised my mother that I would win that race for her or, or perform in that race for her and, and win the Ironman in Hawaii. When the Federation dropped me, I took that as a real insult considering... What you've accomplished, yeah. What I've accomplished, I was their world champion. Yeah. I was the current world number one. I'm like, how can you decide my destiny off what you think in a, in a room? Like, I'll tell you if my head's in the right space right. or not. They you didn't me. have a conversation with you or anything. They didn't have a conversation. Or they made the, they made a broad broad stroke decision that my, you know, with the death of my mother and her being such a important part of my life, um, that I wouldn't be in the right headspace to win a gold medal for them, and they opted to take someone else. And that was it. I went up yours and I moved to the States. And that was when I went on a rampage in three years without being defeated. Yeah. Three races from 33 starts. And I, I took every opportunity of every one of those races to call out my federation. <laughs> right. And, uh, and that was where I guess I got the grizzly. Uh, a lot of people were like, oh, man, this guy's talks a lot of smack. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. You had a chip on that, your shoulder. You, yeah. I had a major chip on my shoulder, major, major chip on my shoulder, and, and that's where that all came from. And and I think it was the key motivator to drive me to be so successful for those three years. And then the Federation ultimately called me to come back for Athens. And um, I said, look, yeah, I hadn't lost a race. I said, look, I'll go to Athens, but you need to pick me for the team now. I need to stay preparing where I'm preparing. I'm loving living in San Diego. And Sorry to interrupt you. Can I ask you how one, how how does that conversation go with the same people that – counted you out and, and put you off to the side kind of yeah they i, I got a phone I'll never forget it i got a, i came back and i won the goodwill games which was a massive event here it used to be run by ted turner and and uh it, it started when the russians were, and the americans were boycotting each other's uh yes so ted turner came out with a great idea and they had one in st petersburg one in new york one in they're all over and every four years and instead of it being like the olympics they would take the top 25 from every sport would get to a new race for huge money and that that last event was in London, and uh, I won this Goodwill Games, which was a huge event. It was the biggest paying event in triathlon history at the time. Wow! And and the federation, and that was like my thirty fifth race win in a row. And they said, look, they sat down with me in London and said, can we have a talk about your future? I said, oh, no, my future's fine, mate. You know, you want to talk about your future, right? Like, right. Because without me, you don't get funded, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know the game now. I'm not a kid. So we sat down and they said, look, we want to we want to bring you back in. We're sorry about what happened in Sydney, but there's new people in power here and, you know, the Athens course suits you. You're world number one. You can win. I said, oh, 100%. I'll win the win the gold medal, but you need to put me in the team now. And we're still like, we're 18 months out. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that, but there's no one going to dislodge me. There's three spots. Yeah, of course. Spots. Let me take it and let me prepare entirely for Athens. And they said they couldn't do it. And um, I said, well, if you don't do it, 
I'll go to Ironman, which is not a decision I wanted to do. Like back then, there was no other choice. There was no 70.3 Ironman. That didn't exist back then. There was either World Cup Olympic Games or Ironman races. And there was 10 Ironmans in the world. And they paid big money. And, and yeah. it was... It, so I don't understand this part, though. Yeah, I don't know. How does this work in, in your in the sport? There was something called um, ITU, and then there's IMAN. yeah, ITU. Yeah, I, the I, yeah, ITU is the governing body that does the Olympic Games. ITU is basically the world governing. Ironman is a private enterprise, right. private company. I got gotcha. you. Had an event called Ironman, you know. So and um, in and triathlon both grew up, but the the actual. Sport is owned by the ITU. Ironman is an Ironman just sold recently for a billion dollars, right? The Chinese owned it. They just sold it again. It's a billion-dollar company. And um, and all they care about is revenue, money, money. So back then there was only 10 races. It was starting to become private equity. was starting to come in and buy it because they realized this triathlon thing was exploding. But back then to win an Ironman, had, had some, you had some currency in that, right? It, it meant something. Now, now there's 300 Ironman. Everyone's done an Ironman. But back then... An Ironman was you were. Were the rules the same? Are the rules the same? Rules the same. It's it's a very different now because there was always limiting around the amount of people you could have in a race. There was mass starts. You know, nowadays it's sort of safety. There's rolling starts, and two people get kicked in the face. It's a completely different <laughs> right. sport. You know, back then there was fifteen hundred people in the water. Go, you Jesus. did get kicked. In the face. Yeah. That was part of the race. And but now they have two and a half thousand people in a race. The drafting, it's a completely different sport. It's just a money making machine. But it's it's bigger sport now. But it had more, from a professional perspective, you had a lot more opportunity back when I was racing than you do today, um, where the, the opportunities are more around the brand as opposed to the individual. Um, but, yeah, so I, 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 what I was saying to the Federation was I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to that private enterprise. They want me anyway. They're trying to get me to come over here. Right. And, uh, It'll be a bit, a little bit like UFC, I guess. I'm going to go fight for UFC. Yeah, right? I wanted, yeah, I wanted to draw some yeah, yeah, analogies yeah. with the UFC. Yeah, we'll yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. that Later, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So I'm with these guys. I'm going to go fight the UFC, and they laughed and said, "Look, you're not cut out for that. You're too big. You're a power athlete. You're a you're an ITU athlete. You're an Olympic right. champion style athlete. And all that <laughs> all that testing shows you can't do Ironman. The way they like, said that to you. Yeah, yeah, and they and they'd done all the testing for years on me in, in my early days. They said, yeah, you can't do Ironman, and you know that. And I'm That's like, so well, yeah, you've left me with no choice. So I, I literally, they didn't put me on the team. So I entered Ironman and started my Ironman journey that day. I won my first Ironman against the world champion and went to Kona my first year in 2003 as the favourite in 2003 and I had a 30-minute lead off the bike and blew to pieces and walked and started my humbling career of, of Ironman racing in Kona because it was a completely different beast. Yeah. yeah completely. You actually brought up UFC, which is a great thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about. So... You said you weren't a great runner in some of your interviews. I heard you said you were better in the water and off the bike. Is that my? Yeah, yeah. I was a I was a good biker. I was a very I was a great runner. I, grew, I was a great runner. But what I found in triathlon was my natural strength. I could execute on the bike and, and establish a margin of error. And a lot of athletes could run into me. And you sort of started to weigh up. I started weighing up that the advantage of my bike by getting that gap won me more races than. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay, so I was a good runner, but I was the strategy element of it wasn't strategy, there for the you. Strategy element wasn't there for me, and then and then that that, that evolves as, as different athletes come. But at that point in my career, my bike was such a weapon. Um, I was a front pack swimmer, and I was so dynamic on the bike, and I could run well. Right. Most big bikers was terrible runners, but I could run strong off a very hard bike. In fact, it was an easy bike. My my standard deviation of run times was not, not equivalent. I could get two minutes up the road on a, on a harder bike and yes. I'd run 30 minutes slower. Or if I rode with the group, those guys would run a minute and a half quicker and I'd only run 30 seconds quicker. So I used to always look at, at the ways to best win a race. And for me, it was front pack swim, explosive bike, margin of error, strong run win so everyone used to call me a front runner because of that so i have not followed the sport for too long so this is why i ask um uh, do you watch ufc do you follow the mma yeah, 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 yes yes so in the early days of uh mma ufc um it was someone was really good at one discipline and that could carry them to win fights if you were really good at jujitsu you could get guys to the ground submit them has i as um triathlon racing evolved also in that sense where at the beginning maybe oh, wow. if you were really good at 
bike or swimming, you could build a lead and carry you. But now you have to be good at everything, kind of. Absolutely. That's yeah. absolutely. I was the first. I was a, so there's the pioneering generation and they call my generation in the sport, which was the first professionals, I guess they say, the first true professionals. Some of the pioneers were big professionals, not without question, but the big money was in my generation. And I was the first generation where that balance was were even across the three disciplines. Um, you know, where, where the generation before, there was definitely a weakness. I you got could swim you. But the current generation, what they have on my yes. generation, they, they grew up in triathlon. Where I, I, I still migrated across from running and it would, would happen to be able to swim. These kids are from age of, because of high performance programs in the ITU, six, seven, eight years of age doing triathlon. Alistair Brownlee, the dual Olympic champion, wow. he started triathlon as, not, as a nine-year-old. Wow. Give, <laughs> give you some perspective, that kid... In, in 19, he swims as fast, and it doesn't seem that long ago, but in 1996, an Australian called Kieran Perkins won the 1500 metres at the Olympic Games in swimming. To make that final, you had to swim under 1530 for 1500, which is now so slow, but 1996, it's fair. Yeah. The of today would have made that final. <laughs> That's good. So they're, 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 and they're runners, and they're runners. They're not, you know that's I mean? not even their primary they're, thing. They're not even their primary sport, right? They're runners and bike yeah. riders. So the, the modern-day athlete is the, what they're doing and, and they're, how close they are to the best in the sport across those individuals is, is remarkable. It's, yeah. it's absolutely remarkable. In fact, a lot of them are going to running events and putting themselves on Olympic run teams. Wow. You know, like that's crazy. They're, they're remarkable. They're remarkable. Unbelievable. There's a lot of uh, things that are very similar with the UFC there. Because when you think about it today, like the average like brown belt could probably go back 10, 20 years in the UFC and literally choke everyone out because no yeah. one had any idea what the hell jiu-jitsu was or it wasn't yeah, really yeah. implemented. So it's kind of interesting to see these sports. They have a lot of similarities, actually, if you really totally. think about we it. We see Connor trying to come across the boxing with Floyd yeah. and, and that type of stuff. Well, the, the fact you can do that, and that's exactly the same. And you're seeing a lot of cyclists now, two of the France cyclists, Towards the end of their career, migrating across to Ironman to try and get some Ironmans. Cameron Worth is a good example. He rides with Ineos. Yeah, Laurent Jalabert, one of the greatest cyclists of all time, trying to do it. There's a lot of cyclists now coming. Lance Armstrong wanted to do it, race me before he got banned. Because there, there is those similarities where you have such a big bike ride, you can do it. And you got Lucy Charles Barclay, the current uh, 70 did, points. Did you ever race um, Lance? Yeah, well, me and Lance and we had a showdown when he was coming across to triathlon. And you can Google it. We were having a match race, and then he went positive. Yeah, I know Lance. I've known Lance for many years. That's crazy. I didn't know that. I I, I didn't even hear about that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, I, to me, the sport is really interesting because um, there's a guy from my city here in Canada, Windsor. His name is Lionel Sanders. And yeah, Lionel. Yeah, everyone yeah, knows Lionel. And I yeah. kind of threw a friend here that a friend here that does a beer mile. He does. Um, he's the world record holder for the beer mile. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah, 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 that'd be my, yeah. Yeah, so he, he told me about this guy that does triathlons. I'm like, oh, triathlons, like, this seems kind of like, I don't know, like, what am I going to watch a guy swim for an hour or what? I started yeah. watching live streams and videos. I'm like, this is, for some reason, like, they've done a really good job. It's fun to watch. There's so much going on. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, And yeah. I don't know how it was your time, these broadcasted events. I've seen, like, your footage on ESPN. I feel like the the viewing side of the sport has also evolved so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did that. We run, I own Super League Triathlon, so I really tried to revolutionise the way we broadcast triathlon globally. So that's now the most watched triathlon product in the world. Really? Wow. Best. Yeah, yeah, superleaguetriathlon.com. Check it out. Um, yeah, we have seven major events around the world, the biggest prize purse in the sport, two million, two million pounds of prize money. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, serious it's, cash, yeah. Yeah, it's good cash, and, they, and we broadcast all over the world. We've got it on YouTube, and we run documentaries. We just did a documentary, which you should watch, called The Invincible. We've got Sub 7, Sub 8 happening with part of the Phoenix Foundation, which is an attempt at breaking seven hours for the Ironman. Wow. Um, which is exactly like the Ineos thing, which will be done with Alistair Brownlee and Christian Blumenfeld, the two Olympic champions. So there's a whole bunch. A lot of us in this space are trying to repackage triathlon and the way it's broadcast and and my group is leading a lot of that yeah super league has led the charge on that and a lot of the stuff you see with lionel and talbot and yeah and the invincible documentary which we just finished the last release which was I'll relevant that watch, yeah 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 vincent louis we did what four four part series exactly what they do in i copied ufc well, i copied 24 yes. 7 yes i love yeah. i love my boxing so that 24 7 model i'm trying to implement into creating athlete stars within within this sport 
because there's relevance to, to, to the everyday person. Yeah. I think when the UFC started doing those embedded videos and it maybe got 50 to 100,000 views, people might have looked at that like, oh, what are you guys wasting your time filming this nonsense? And now it's their best promotion. Like it's it yeah, not, yeah, it's yeah. not only good promotion for the card they're selling, but it's good promotion for every athlete on that card because long term, they're going to keep building a story, which is going to be easier to sell. And that's exactly. kind of what you're trying to do, right? With, with your exactly. sport. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. What's the biggest hurdle then, I guess, getting the average person to come over and watch triathletes? Um, yeah, I, I think, as you said, trying to understand what it is. I think um, um, broadcasts, where, where, you, where you deliver, where, where the community is. It used to be you work with broadcast partners, but now it's hard to condense a seven, eight-hour race into a into a 52-minute TV right. package and, and justice. So broadcasting is very difficult. Um, the change with OTT platforms now and Facebook and the ability to stream and that's that's changed everything. And, and basically, it's about creating heroes and teaching people what they're looking at, what they're watching. And and, and once you get that, it's it's an easy. It's like golf, you know, golf porn. But I'll, I'll tune in and watch it. All <laughs> right, right. Well, now that you have time in quarantine, I'm sure you go watch some <laughs> um, from a viewing experience wise, also there's you kind of have to keep the attention of the viewer, right? Which is really difficult in your sport. Some sports is very easy to do that, but how do you do that with triathlons? How do you keep them always engaged? I think you got to have a lot of pre-recorded content, a yeah. lot of data. Um, you know, and the big difference between fans in triathlon and fans, which we found in most fans, they actually do. So they're much more engaged. You know, a lot of fans watch football; they don't play it, right? They're just sure. fans of the team, right? But most people that watch triathlon actually participate in some form of triathlon or running or cycling event. So you've got a more a more engaged audience. So you're looking at that fleeting audience and how do you engage people that don't have an understanding. So it's all around that long-form content, trying to create athlete stars. UFC became big off the back of Conor McGregor, mate. Yeah. Like it was getting big, don't get me wrong. But Conor McGregor, people showed that people still are inspired by individuals. And they need to know a story and buy into a story, whether that's a villain or a hero. That right. whole rhetoric works, and 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 it has worked forever. And and it's just where you deliver that content now that's become different. Whether it's YouTube, and and it's sort of segregated your demographic. You know, most of your demographic on YouTube is relatively young. Most of you, sure. you know, so yeah. it's how you distribute now that makes it harder. The distribution of content that you have. You know, what's also really difficult that I find um, with there's so many different events, it's kind of hard to gauge what's going on. What's the significance of an event where where you have like established sports, let's say tennis, a good example. You have the 250 point tournaments, the 500, the thousand, and then you have the slams. Those are the events. Those are the biggest competitions. This sport has so many different outlets and so many different things going on. It's very hard to keep track of everything almost, which kind of loses the value of of the events, which, you know, it's tough to probably do. You've nailed it. And that's exactly what I was saying about the difference between today and my day was there was a clear, there was a world champion every year. Yes. Now there's champions everywhere. There's Ironman champions. <laughs> it's like boxing the nine belts. Everyone has yeah, a belt mate. now. Yeah. That, that, that's my argument about today. Like, like and the athletes today are saying, why don't we make as much money? I said, because you're a diluted product, mate. Yeah, there's too much. Who, who is the champion? Now, this guy's done a record. This guy's got a world record on a course that was short. This guy's got a record. Like, mate, there's no... There's no substance here anymore. You've got to, and you can't expect these private entities to build substance because they make their money out of mass participation. They don't yes. care about you, right? That's uh, true. Big, well, yeah, you, you need to you need to rely on companies like me, Super League, and buy into my story. Otherwise, you're doomed. That's the that's one thing that's that. really unique, though. If you think about it, there's no other sport <laughs> where the fans can be in the water with you in one of the races. Exactly. Where where else exactly. can you do that? There's no guy in the cage with me when I'm you know like watching. Exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly yeah, right. That's actually that's, that's that's the value piece. But yeah, it's it's a very different time nowadays. That's for sure. When, when you say there's like villains and, and heroes and stories, who who are the biggest personalities in the sports? I only know like the Lionel Sanders because you know hometown and stuff like that. But yeah, well, Lionel, Lionel's a big name. Lionel's considered a hard worker, like a working heart. He's never he wins, but he's he doesn't have the talent of the of the big guys. Um, he's just a really, really hardworking guy and he's got a big He's following. obsessive about his... Obsessive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how he's going to be when the sport stops for him when he ages. <laughs> right. He's like that obsessive, compulsive personality guy. Um, but there's Jan Fredino, a German. He's yeah. remarkable. Olympic champion. Um, 
the, the Norwegians at the moment, Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld. Fun personality, no, Gustav. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're, they're huge names. And Alistair Brownlee is always a massive name in, in England. He's a dual Olympic champion. His brother won the Olympics in, in Tokyo in the team event. Um, yeah, they're, they're the big names. we got a team called the Bahrain Endurance 13 team. We work for the Royal Family of, of Bahrain, and we have the top 13 athletes in the world, and they're on that team. And uh, that, that, they're basically the gold standard that team I'm, yeah. I'm really excited what you know what you are going to bring to the sport I'm, I'm i was always wondering you know after you finish your long career and you've you know how do you how do you keep up how do you you know have that same drive that same passion or you know can you even do that is it possible to to continue to something else to bring the same kind of determination oh without question i think uh, i get i i look when i retired i was frustrated with a lot of my peers because i thought they were such amazing adversaries as, as athletes and you learn so much about an individual when you go to battle with them in a, in a, in a triathlon and you have this mental war and you realize how strong you, you know uh, so many so much respect for them you know man you're a tough, you're a tough bugger you know what i mean so like, it's like a fight like a yeah it's another ufc yeah yeah, exactly. right? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're a tough guy right whether i beat you or not man i, I have a lot of respect for you. And, you and then it's like when you take them out of that environment they wilter. Like, I'm like, well, why can't we be giants in another realm? And that's sort of when I retired, I was like, right, I'm doing this, this, this. Everyone laughed. I'm going to, I don't like what they're doing in triathlon. I'm going to change it. And everyone's like, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to change it. Like, I, I, had, I just applied the same mindset I did as an athlete to yeah. business, where it seems that when a lot of people retire, they retreat and they get defensive with, and they don't take the same risks that they did as athletes. They, they live a completely different life and wonder why, it's not going the same way as it was when they were athletes. Right. As, as an athlete, your whole life's a risk. I, I quit my job to become an athlete. Of course. I risk about that. And if, oh, you were young then. I'm like, whether I was young or old, it's, it's a mindset. And I, I really felt that when I entered the business world. And I, I, I find business easier. It's an easier world to exist in because there's a lot more of it than the boutique world of, business, of being an athlete. But the principles are the same. You know, almost an obsessiveness to a to a goal, focusing on a goal, working out solutions to the problem, coordinating that with people, communicating your needs, getting the work done. I found the transition to business relatively easy in Super League. Now, and everyone laughed five years ago, is now the biggest in the sport. And right, beautiful around a million dollar valuation, and everybody's like. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Know. Who would have thought this guy uh, that, you know, said he was going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same with the teams. And now we have the Phoenix Foundation. We do the Phoenix. We're doing the Sub 7 event, you know, Sub 7, Sub 8.com. That's the big event in June next year. If you watch it, it's uh, exactly like the two-hour project for Kipchoge with Netflix. Right. So beautiful. Wow. People are like, why? Well, I have. I'm like, well, it's they was there. Someone had to just do there. it. Why yeah. not do it? Why, like, right. why not do it? Why? You know, and it's that's. Yeah, I say to any athlete that's retiring, you can do anything. You know, take take the net. Your network is your net worth, and uh, that's yeah, and, very good. Yeah, and and have a crack at it. Yeah. That what's the you know I think you talked about earlier in your career. You said you were a little bit smug sometimes showing up to these races. You felt like you could kind of, and I, I, maybe that's a bit rude to say, but you said yourself that you yeah. thought you could win some of these races without actually doing everything that you needed to do. What's the advice you would give someone younger right now? in their, you know, if they're starting out their career. Yeah, yeah. We just did a few, uh, great, great questions. We just did a Futures camp as part of our MANA group, the Phoenix Foundation. Futures is that we take the best 30 junior athletes from a region, and this year it was in Europe, and it was myself, Usain Bolt, John Stephenson, Ola Rod, she's a climber, Nicholas Perry. There's a whole bunch of old athletes. And we, it's basically a mentorship program to show kids how to transition from being successful youth and juniors to, to elites. So yes. this is probably, the, these all these 30 athletes are probably targeting Paris or Wimbledon in a few years. So it's tennis players, karate, athletics. They're all with us in Lausanne this year. And that question came up to to Usain Bolt, who in my opinion is one of the greatest athletes to of our generation. Without a doubt, yeah. <laughs> you know? And and they said, what advice would you have or what, what advice would you have for one of the kids? What advice would you have for a young Usain Bolt? You know, if you could have it all again, what? He said, I, have, I know the exact advice. Get serious now, right? And, and those kids were 16. And so he's saying, said he took too long to get serious, even though he had a great career. Yeah. He's like, I, I, I underperformed people, right? And everyone's right. like, oh, my God. He's like, I underperformed. I'm telling you. So I'm telling you, get serious now. And time, you don't have time. Right. You do not have it, right? So 
you, you have to fix problems now as, as they as they present and, and work forward. Ah, not, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. He said, solve problems as they present and get serious now. And that's, you know, any young junior athlete, that's what I give. And to any amateur who's talking, oh, I want to do a triathlon next year, I want to, well, next year never comes, right? Yeah. You, you, you enter it. Do it now. Get serious right now. Not tomorrow, not next day. No. And once once you do that, you, you build accountability in yourself. And once yeah. accountability, accountability trumps motivation every day of the week. 100%. You know? Yeah, that's once, very true. Once you're accountable to something, you're, 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 you're accountable to yourself and you're less likely to let yourself down. And, and that whole momentum, your whole momentum and, and luck to some degree starts to change. Once you show up, it's like hot yoga. Sometimes I go to hot yoga and it's a it's a nightmare in there. It's like forty yeah, yeah. degrees Celsius. But everyone else is doing it. I see the old lady at seventy doing it. What, am I gonna yeah, stop? Yeah. Am I gonna stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Janice <laughs> seventy? No way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but you're not the first one that I've heard say that because I've heard uh, Serena Williams coach say the exact same thing. Patrick um, Mortogolo. Yeah, Mortogler. he said the way he got that coaching job was when Serena it was whatever in Wimbledon. He was there. And she was interested in a coach and, you know, she came up to him and, and she asked him what he thinks he can bring to the table. And he's like, this was when she won like 15 grand slams. He's like, I think you're underachieving. Like he flat out told her, I think you're, and this was yeah, yeah. something that no one ever told her in her career. She won 15 grand slams. She was on the cover of every magazine. She yeah, was yeah, the yeah. most successful tennis player in, in the history at that point. And he's like, yeah. I still think you're not doing as the best you could. And he immediately got the job for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Insane. It's I was true. like, wow, that's that makes so much sense. Um, there's we're running out of time. We usually do an hour. I don't know how much time you have. I kind of want to just run down some of the more interesting races in your career. Maybe you can run me back a little flashback because okay. I yeah. feel like that sparks the most interest when you tell me, oh, there was a close finish line sprint or whatever it was. So the first one I have is your 2000. Was it? Oh man, I forgot the date. In Roth, Germany, was it 2002? Oh, I had a sprint with, yeah, 2003, I think. Three. Was, yeah, second Ivor Ironman I ever did against Lothar Later. Lothar was uh, the first man to ever break eight hours for the Ironman. He was a monster in Ironman racing. I was new to the sport. And that was the first defeat I had in, in years. Um, but, yeah, he beat me in a sprint finish. I, I The whole day I thought I had it won because um, I was naturally faster than he was. Uh, so I thought because he had the experience, I'd just follow him all day. And we, we I, I swam in front of him. He caught me on the bike. We rode together. And we literally ran every step of the marathon side by side. Wow. And, and you know, Roth is amazing race. There's almost a million spectators. And the last the last oh, three or four kilometres, you're five people deep of Germans going bananas. <laughs> Was that the, the, the changing factor, the home crowd and the Germans cheering them on? I think a, a bit of experience and probably my inexperience. I, I was that confident that I had it won. I was just going to out-sprint him the whole way. So, no, mate, you got you got to try and get rid of me. My whole focus was I'm faster than you, so at the end of the race I'm going to sprint, out-sprint you, so your job is to get rid of me. And he, he kept trying to get rid of me, and he couldn't. So I was building confidence off that, not realising that he had a dynamite sprint as well, and sprinting at the end of an Ironman, has nothing to do with speed, but it's everything to do with strength, right? So I, I hadn't learned that lesson until that day. Mental strength, then, you mean, or physical strength? Mental strength. Physical strength. Physical. Your leg, your body, so you can't drive your legs up. Your, your natural spring action is to drive, but your, your whole hip flexors are cramped. Everything's gone. So I, I was very, it was only my second Ironman, so I had never been in that position before. And, yeah, when we made a move about uh, 400 metres out, he positioned himself on the inside, got the inside run around one of the corners, which was a little gap, and that gap just stayed two body lengths for 400 metres. We sprinted, which probably wasn't a sprint at the end of an Ironman. But <laughs> it felt like one. <laughs> it felt like one. And, yeah, 50,000 like, people were going bananas. I remember crossing the line and it was deafening. Went like he, wow. We both collapsed at the end of the finish and I was on the ground. It just did not stop. And I remember looking up. I didn't realise how big the crowd was until you sort of sit up in the stadium and you look down the rail like, my God, like, this is massive. And then he held me up and was like, mate, welcome to Roth. And that was a race I ended up, yeah, I ended up coming back every year because I and won it, what, five times after that. But that race was a – I was happy to lose that one because he was the king of rock. Yeah. His fourth win and I ultimately went on and beat him the following year and and we built this – we created this amazing rivalry within this event. That's Maybe that, it was that, better that you lost because then that pushed you It was. Harder, 100% right? was yeah. yeah, it was. 100% better. For people who haven't seen the footage, it's unreal. Go, I, You post it on your channel, It's it looks like something out of a movie, like a Rocky movie or something. Yeah, um, amazing. Another one that I want to discuss was Hawaii, your first, well, your your biggest, toughest challenge, probably Hawaii, right? What made that island so difficult to race on? 
I was, I'm naturally a bigger guy. So most Ironman athletes at the elite level, professional level, are really light. I, I you know, there's just deficiencies with heat. And, um, and that's where Lionel Sanders struggles a lot in the way. He got second there, never won it. I got, and I, um, for me, I was all in, all out. I, I didn't want to come sixth or fifth or fourth. Now that I didn't want to build a career on fifths and fourths. And six. so I, people say, oh, you failed so many times in Hawaii. I'm like, yeah, I got fifth and seventh and sixth, which people have a career on. But for me, it was win or nothing. That was like it. Once you and have so, high standards, that's what you're accustomed yeah, to. Yeah, and I, and I struggled. I got second there. I got fourth there. And there was a point there where I didn't think I could win it. My best ever race was the year I got second in 2006, I think. I got beaten by 70 seconds in a war with a guy called Norman Stadler who had run the race twice before. We had a very strong rivalry. And um, yeah, he beat me this year in probably the best race I ever executed there. Second best. The best was 2010. But... What, 2007 um, is when you won, though, no? 2007, you I think won. think yeah, 2006 I, I, when you lost was better than the 2007 when you won? Well, 2006, I won easily. It was a, I, I couldn't believe it. 2007. It super hot. 2007, yeah, 2007 yeah. I won easily. But as a performance, 2007, I was never challenged at all. Really? I was in the comfort box. Yeah, not, not at all. I was happy to win. Right. I was challenged a little bit on the bike. I, I set a blistering pace on the marathon, broke everybody, had a seven or eight-minute lead and was able to jog the last five kilometres and celebrate, right? Um but 2006, I was in that race to the last step. I ended up in a medical tent with two liters of IV in me. I'd never pushed, never pushed myself that hard. And I was so satisfied with the result because I couldn't have gone any hard. I was beaten by a better guy. That was my best performance. I, I, and I was beaten by a guy who, yeah, it was a changing of the times. He came, he came out with a swimsuit at the time that ultimately became the standard of swimsuits, the new long sleeve, long arm, speed. Back in the day, we used to wear speedos and and, and tuck our singlets into the, into the speedos, right? Yeah. Or you would change to, in the tent. I'd, oh, we changed in the tent. Like, had, like they didn't even give you privacy. The German footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what yeah, are you yeah. doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> privacy. <laughs> exactly. And that's what he came out like, and he used to swim a few minutes behind us, and he got out that year with us because of the new technology and won the race. So that's it's to be part of that whole evolution that he brought to the racing and then to have a great race finish second and then to have the career after it. And it's, I find that event in a way very satisfying because I was never supposed to be successful there because I sweat so much. I'm big. I have problems with, with heat dispersion. I, I won every other Ironman I ever did in the world, like 18 of them, 19 of them, but I struggled in Kona because of that heat. In 2010, something that really stood out to me, that it's a really interesting thing. You said that I forgot the name, uh, Rellert, is that his name? And Andreas Raylett. You went to the last kilometer or two couple kilometers and you realized that he needed water and Coke or whatever. And you yes. went in front of him to take the, the drinks before him and then he would kind of lose his rhythm, struggle to find the next one, and then you took off. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was, natu- I was naturally in front, what are you doing in an aid station, which is a natural play because you usually only have three or four volunteers and usually a group of athletes hit an aid station, there's six or seven or so it's first in best stress, right? So um, I, when I heard him screaming for Coke and water, I was already in front of him and I wasn't going to go through that aid station because we were literally a mile from home to win the world championships. And we just had this war and I was trying to feel each other out. And I was more shocked that he was going after fluids this close to the finish line. You know, I'm like, mate, you, you go for fluids. And then one part of my brain said, well, if he wants them, he needs them more than me. So I just went straight over and I grabbed them and started tipping the water on my head to cool off. Right, and then I could hear him yelling for water, water, water. <laughs> and then right. I, I just voice in my head went, "Bomb, go!" So as he was looking for water, I, I hit the gas. Did he lose a little bit of rhythm, and then you kind of took off? Yeah, well, you naturally do. You're looking, you know, when you're when you're running and you're focused ahead, you you got your rhythm and everything. Yeah. When you're looking for water, hands that are holding cups, you know, you're like, hey, you're naturally out of rhythm. So it's a perfect time to you see in any marathon at the Olympics or anything most. Most attacks happen around those water stations, aid stations. It's when people are naturally out of their rhythm. So it's yeah. a it's a tactical move. And I yeah, I used it to win that race in 2010 and broke his spirit so close to home. Well, at that time, is that like a was that something anyone would have thought? This is my question, I guess. Or is that something that was kind of, you know, there's levels to this game kind of moment and you just figured it out? Or was that normal to have people do that kind of no, thing? No, no, I think it's a, it was a game time moment. I it think you're yeah. looking yeah, yeah. When you're when you're at that point of a race, I, I always tell about an Ironman. You're so physically and mentally stripped. You're so raw, mate. There's no more lying to yourself. That's what the beauty about an Ironman is. When you when you're suffering, oh, 
Can I just pause? I no think worries, no worries. Top. Sorry, it's my food drop off for the day in hotel quarantine. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Uh, so yeah, I was asking uh, that moment when you figured that out. Was that a normal thing that you think anyone would have figured out, or is this something that kind of where we like talk levels to this game moment? No, this, it's, it's top level. Without question, it's a strategic game, and a lot of people and amateurs in particular don't realize the strategy around. They think an Ironman is just complete the distances. Yeah. But that at a racing level, it's about being reactive. You. you it's not as if I lose a race in an Ironman by over eight hours pulling away like one second every hour and I win by, you know, you win a race in a moment. Most of the time in an Ironman you feel comfortable, but it's only these storms that come and storms of pain and agony that come and how you react in that moment that ultimately loses you a race, you know, whether that happens on the bike or in the run. And so as, a, as an athlete, you try and take on board that when you feel good, you push, and when you when you're struggling or these storms come and you're dealing with emotions and pain and, and everything, then you, you, you sort of shelter up, shell yeah. up and, and fight that storm as it's happening and that'll go away and then you push again. But at the end of a race, you are so emotionally and physically stripped. There's nothing left to give. You're just in 100% agony. You fear. Right. It hurts to, hurts to run, hurts to breathe. It's hot. You're burnt. Your skin's burnt. <laughs> right. You're just over it. And all as you have is your sanity to some degree. So when I, when I, you're looking for you're looking for weaknesses in your competitors because that, that emotional confidence that comes with them being weak and you not being weak at that moment is is so empowering. Yeah, game and I'm calling, yeah, game yeah. when he's calling for water, I'm like, oh, he must right. be hurting. Right. You know, so this emo, this positive emotion, he must be hurting. He need what does he need water? I don't need water. These are the conversations you you having with your head, and and then suddenly when you sort of compute compute engine, he must be hurting. Go, yeah, you know, it's sort yeah, of that yeah. type. It's sort of that type of opportunity. You're an opportunity. You see an opportunity and you seize it. Right. And, and when you commit, as I said, when I committed to that goal, it was like, all right, this is it. I'm all in. There's no, no don't second back. guess. Back. Yeah. If he catches you, it's over. But I remember saying to myself, this is every single track session you've ever done. This is every time dad drove you to the athletics track as a kid. This is every day you've been away from your kids. This is everything. I don't care if you rip your kidneys out to win this thing. Do not look back and just suck up the pain. It's only going to be 10 minutes and, and, and go. You don't want to have more. a regret either. That's another thing you can't do. You don't want no regrets. You just want to commit, be all in. It, make sure it's a, if it's UFC, make sure it's a knockout punch, not right. a, you know, make sure you put him down. That, I mean, I don't think there's a better way to end than that. We talked for an hour. I, I mean, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything you want, you're working on that you want to plug? I see you're uploading YouTube videos once in a while. Are you going to keep no, doing no, that? Really. Yeah, just follow everything. If you're into triathlon, follow what we're doing at, at um, the Mana Group. But sub7sub8.com is a major event we're putting on. If you love triathlon, it's going after the world records in Ironman. Be all on Netflix. We're putting out great documentary series around that. And, uh, yeah, follow everything we're doing. Beautiful. Awesome. Extremely grateful for your time, Chris. Thank you so much. No worries. Too easy. <laughs>